0: I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Last week, the week of February 4th, 2019, was Wellness Week at Parish in our middle and upper schools. Wellness Week is a part of the Centered program that I discussed in my January 7th, 2019 podcast episode with Parish's social-emotional counselors. During Wellness Week, our upper and middle school students engage through advise your activities and chapel presentations, and learning and reflection about mental well-being, their own and that of others. This is important work for us always, but so much more so, it seems, for today's young people. My guest on this podcast, Dr. Regina McFarlane, helps us to explore why that is. Dr. McFarlane, a board-certified adult and child psychiatrist, has been in private practice with Park City Psychiatry since 2003. Her specialties include attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, depressive disorders, and autism spectrum disorders. Dr. McFarlane understands the pressures facing today's teens, and has witnessed an acceleration in teen wellness issues over the course of the last decade and a half. A mother and graduate of a peer school of parishes, St. Stephen's Episcopal in Austin, Dr. McFarland's insights are grounded both in her professional training at Vanderbilt, UT Houston, and UT Southwestern, and in her practical experiences as an independent school alumna and mother. This is an interesting conversation, one that I believe parents will find illuminating. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Regina McFarland. Regina McFarland, thank you for joining us on the From My Angle podcast. We sure are glad to have you.
1: It's nice to be here.
0: Dr. Regina McFarland uh, is with Park City Psychiatry, is a child psychiatrist, and also works with adults and um, knows a lot about the state of the adolescent here in the Metroplex. So we're going to pick this uh, apart a little bit. But Regina, give us a little bit of your backstory professionally and you know how you came to this work, which you've been doing for almost two decades now here um, in the area with, with young people.
1: You bet. Um, So I'm originally from Austin, Texas, and went to one of your competitor schools, St. Stephen's Episcopal of the Year.
0: Excellent
1: school. I love it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, And went off to Vanderbilt University, and then went on and and went to med school in Houston at University of Texas, and then did my Southwestern for my residency and fellowship. So that's kind of how I ended up in Dallas, met my wonderful husband here and stayed. Um, And I have two kids, um, a third grader and a sixth grader. So I'm also a mom, which I think also has affected my practice a little bit in the way I, you know, definitely less judgment and more understanding that things are difficult to change and facing this tide of anxiety and pressure so
0: yeah it's the cause with kids have no shoes right like I feel like I can help parents all the time figure out what to do with their kids but with my 3 I'm, I'm always scratching my head wondering how I could be such a bad such a bad parent <laughs> <laughs> just, how, just how it works so how did you find yourself professionally attr- um, to, to be attracted to working with young people versus uh, other age segments what was the what was the draw for you
1: but Okay, so I grew up, my, and my parents are both lawyers, and my dad has OCD, and Dude. so it was a very interesting sort of introduction to, you know, what are all these, what is that anxiety causing, and what is that, and trying to understand it, and then I got off to college, and um, one of my roommates had a really nasty eating disorder, which affected wow. all of us, and so did some interventions there, and kind of got more interested in it, and then when I got to med school, um, I thought I was going to do pediatrics, I kind of enjoyed it, that's why I went there. But when I got into it, I really was fascinated with psychiatry and ended up doing child psych because of my love of children. So it, mm-hmm. it sort of was a natural progression
0: absolutely and and uh, you really couldn't be doing more important work at a more vital time because we're going to dig into this conversation about uh, I'm uh, kind of near nearly thirty years into a, a career in education and and uh, followed in the footsteps of the of a dad who was in the business for over 40. So I call myself at times a, a bit of a, a sociologist of, of independent school education, was an independent school kid myself like you. So, I mean, I've kind of seen this arc over, you know, half a century of uh, what it felt like to be in independent schools and what it feels like now and where adolescents are in this day and age. And um, I'm just gonna get our conversation going with um, some pretty, um, I think, dramatic statistics. You may have some to complement this uh, as mm-hmm. well. Suicide now is the third leading uh, cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds across uh, the United States. Uh, 2013 survey of uh, college students nationally, 57% of the women and 40% of the men were suffering from, an ang- from anxiety. Uh, the Center for College uh, Mental Health just came out with a report uh, in September, which I've cited, uh, one in five uh, college freshmen anxious uh, or depressed. And if you read anything about the world of higher education, uh, the uh, college counseling services on college campuses uh, can't keep up. Uh, The colleges are being essentially inundated with this. And I reference colleges not because Parish is a college, but we're a college preparatory school. And so I say, what is it about our model, our type of school, what we're doing to kids at places like Parish or Highland Park where you are or Plano ISD, other high achieving districts, what are we doing that might be yielding the types of students that these colleges are receiving, where these statistics are originating from. So with that as some context of the state of adolescence, what are you in your practice uh, here in Highland Park seeing in the state of adolescence today?
1: Well, you bet. And I I think those numbers definitely reflect what we've seen here. Um, You know, when I looked at it, it was 38% of females and 26% of males. It is 13 to 18 that are meeting criteria for an anxiety disorder during that time. I and mean, those are huge numbers and definitely up on the rise. And I have seen, when I first started working almost 20 years ago, we saw lots of first graders and third graders coming with, when, with anxiety, you know, starting school, adjusting to it, maybe having you know a little social anxiety as well, kind of, you know, and, and trouble going. And now we're seeing it as freshmen, in high school with that pressure on their grades and the pressure to like have things for their CV or their resume. And then I have had a huge increase of them coming in beginning of senior year, which is very interesting. You think it would be sort of an exciting time like it used to be for us growing up where you're excited to go off to college and ready to be on your own. And there was more anticipation and and joy about leaving home. Um, And now it seems that there is a lot of fear, um, a lot of fear of failure. Um, And, you know, there, I think a lot of things driving this and, you know, some of it we can try to prevent against. And sometimes it's just helping them understand that the world does have deadlines and goals and, you know, there's going to be anxiety provoking moments and to help hold their hand through it, but not to run away or avoid it or accommodate for it sometimes.
0: Yeah, healthy stress uh, versus unhealthy stress is an excellent conversation piece. And we, by all means, at a a school like ours, uh, embrace the type of healthy stress that we all need to live lives that are purposeful and advancing uh, and and ultimately, quote unquote, successful by most kind of superficial metrics, if you will. Um, I think it's the unhealthy, it's this unhealthy stress, which has got us all a little bit befuddled. I I think there are three um, source lines that I wanna explore with you because uh, you know, a little bit oversimplified, I, I would say some combination of all three of these have been at play as we try again to look at, a, at an assessment of what the change has been generationally from a time when I know as a senior graduating from private school in 1985, the amount of uh, anxiety and uh, labeling and diagnoses that went on around me was dramatically less than what we see now. I know as a school administrator in 1998, first time school administrator, uh, we were not being as inundated as we are today with the types of um, statistics that we just uh, uh, covered and the types of diagnoses that are out there. We're in a much different place. So these three sources I think we can kind of pick apart uh, are academic pressure, which you already cited, uh, social media and the comparative culture that emanates from it, and uh, more anxious parenting styles, right? Uh, exactly. sort of the, um, the, the soil in which our kids now are 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 um, are seated. So um, let, let's maybe work work in reverse order because I think uh, podcast listeners here know a lot about where we stand in the academic stress and pressure. And so let's really go to parenting styles because I suspect that's where a lot of your expertise is. To what are you seeing in parenting styles today that might be different than it was, and where do you see some of the fault lines or problems in present parent styling that could be addressed with education and awareness on the parent's part.
1: Well, you bet. And I think that's great because maybe if you start early, we can help these kids not get to this kind of boiling point as a 12th grader, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So in terms of parenting, you know, we've, we've got more working two family, you know, two parent working parents. And Mm. that I think leads to a little bit of guilt, With parenting you know feel especially guilt-ridden mothers on some level feeling like they are working too hard or not spending enough time with their kids and so then there is a tendency to be overly lenient or overly indulgent to make up for it and um and so that lack of boundaries and the uncertainty of too many choices um can be difficult for kids and actually leads to a lot of anxiety there's a lot less authoritative parenting and a lot more do whatever you want you can be whatever you want and you know, while that's the outward message, the message from the schools, are you have to do this, this, and this, or you're not going to get in. So there's this discordant kind of message where they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. And I think, um, um, I think there's more of a focus on material status. Um, and we talked a little bit about affluenza and, and parents wanting to give their kids a leg up, wanting to do everything they can for them. But what gets sacrificed is maybe the kid's own confidence or ability to make independent decisions or to solve their own situations and think on their feet. And so when when I looked at, you know, what might actually help your kid to not be an anxious high schooler and not to kind of have these panic attacks coming on or this feelings of inadequacy. Mm -hmm. The first thing they said is, as a parent, we need to stay as calm as we can, right? Because there's a tendency when they come at you with anxiety to come right back at them with more emotion um, and to model it first for them Um, and to not avoid anxiety-provoking situations with them, to go at it head on. Don't put it off. Don't delay it, but help them tackle a situation and go at it, but don't do it for them. Um, And then this conversation. And I think maybe our parents were really good at this. Um, I remember hearing, you know, as I got older and older, there's always going to be somebody prettier, smarter, or richer, um, you know, maybe better at a sport, but I want you to be well-rounded. I want you to be um, good at lots of things. You don't have to be the best at anything and focusing on hard work, What are more than the outcome? I think that really helps kids if they studied hard and worked hard, and maybe they made a B plus instead of an A, they're not going to go and feel like life is over as they know it. Do you know that because you're proud of them and they've done what you asked them to do? And the focus is on learning how to study and improving rather than making straight A's or you're a failure.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's so much that you said in there that's substantive and worth uh, scrolling back through a little bit. The first about this notion of authoritative parenting. Now, for parents not familiar with the lingo, authoritative parenting may sound draconian or harsh. Authoritative parenting is actually not that. Authoritative parenting is really around setting consistent limits with your kids, right? In other words, uh, what kids crave, especially at the young age to which you're referring, Regina, are uh, a set of known uh, expectations, not overly harsh ones, but ones that are consistently upheld, and when they begin to waver, or when at the first temper tantrum or pushback there's indulgement or enabling, uh, then what the student gets uh, is the permissive parenting essentially, and they are right. not able to set up structures for themselves that create the kind of autonomy to which you're referring, this notion of agency or autonomy where the parent doesn't have to fix the problem, the student can. So authoritative parenting, if you read on it, you can Google it and read folks like Dr. Robert Evans and others who write really well on that, um, is really, I think, a critical, uh, a critical piece.
1: Well, and that's perfect. So it's, it is okay to set limits with your child. It's okay to tell your child no a lot. Um, and it's okay if they are not very happy with you sometimes because the goal is not for them to like you. The goal is for them to have good rules, good limits, work hard and be a productive adult who can launch successfully into the world and not need you for backup 24-7 or not understand what the rules are and not function well within society.
0: So. And this this notion of affluenza, which you also cited in your first response, I think deserves some attention. And again, I, you know just parents, you can do your own research on this if you're listening. Affluenza, rather than influenza, uh, <laughs> is talking about really this notion of kids who are coming from conditions of affluence or high resource, which is in arguably the North Dallas set by any medium metric right. or measure. Uh, the kids in this in this area and region are of resource, uh, and what affluenza creates is. Uh, essentially a, 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 a condition of uh, lethargy and sort of uh, expected um, entitlement. You know, expected yeah. entitlement uh, when it comes to uh, the types of course of life decisions that uh, that students are encountered with and so um, uh, Sonia Luther out at uh, University of California has done probably the leading work in afffluenza and uh, I'd certainly read up on it it is it is uh, an interesting phenomenon one that I think those of us living in well-resourced communities uh, need to be able to to, to check ourselves on. And again, it basically gets back to the idea of setting limits, having expectations on kids to carry some of their own weight, uh, um, both in the academic fold, but also around the home. uh, And essentially having them understand that life is not going to be laid before them on a silver, on a silver platter, as it were, right? Or a gold platter to the affluent. And, And it
1: helps, it helps to build their confidence. If they, you know, are not good at something or working towards something. And then you say, hey, you know, I know you want this, but I'm not going to give it to you until you finish this thing that we both want that would be good for you. Mm -hmm. And if they work towards that, whether it's a new lacrosse stick or it's, you know, something that they want, you're sort of, they're working hard to achieve it. And then they get the ownership of earning Mm -hmm. it rather than it's just sort of given to them and an expectation. So you're setting up this idea that you have to work hard to get results. Right. And that that helps them understand that life is not going to be handed them and they have to work and go to class and go to school and that college is a privilege and that we would like to help them with it. But it also <clears has throat> taken away if they don't go to class, don't go to school or, you know, or don't make their grades and then they're going to have to figure out another way to get there.
0: So. No. Um, and I think just finishing up on this, on this notion of sort of anxious parenting styles, all, again, all of these, uh, three factors, three flow lines that we're talking about, academic pressure, social media, comparative culture, and parenting styles all bleed together. But when it comes to these anxiety, uh, these sort of anxious parents, this academic pressure is real. And if you listen to the back podcasts I have with these college admissions officers and others, you know, about our effort at parish to really sort of de uh, sort of de-stress and, and, uh, uh, remove some of the conditions of transactional uh, characteristic from education today. Like right. we have to, we have to help parents understand that um, uh, the, the anxiety that they bring to the academic arena uh, is is not uh, is not helpful, right? And so parents get into pro- what I call proxy parenting. You know, Johnny's going to Kumon three out three days a week. Right. So, uh, so Johnny over there with my friend Susan. Like, that means I've got to have my son or daughter go to Kumon three days a week, right? Or uh, you Right, know, it's
1: com- comparative. Am I doing more than everyone else? Parenting,
0: or- right, like, I, I'm just going to do what the other parents are doing. You know, uh, Sally's going for a five-day mission trip uh, with church, so uh, that must be the thing that we have to do because the the window to get into these colleges has gotten so narrow and, and so okay. challenging to get into these sort of very top, quote, unquote, best schools uh, that parents feel incredible anxiety and, So we urge parents, I urge parents to define your personal parent and family's true north and don't proxy parent. Don't try to impose upon your own children uh, the conditions of select teams and extra practice sessions and academic tutoring that other families are doing. uh, Because that inauthenticity, that lack of following your own family's true north creates huge anxiety within the family construct
1: right because it's not really internally driven it's externally driven and so they're not it's not they're not happy with all the things that they're doing when you've got a kid who wants to do something and they're asking for it and they want more of whatever that sport is or you know or a little coaching or tutoring when they ask for it you know i think it's it's fine to help them out to to you know within certain limits but you can there is no boundary now on what you, how much you can do, how much money you can spend on it, and how many days a week you can be involved in extracurriculars. And so you have to have some limits so that these kids feel like, okay, I am doing what they've asked me to do, and I'm doing a good job at it, rather than I'm never doing enough, right? And, and I think it's up to the parent to send that message, like, I'm very proud of you. You're doing plenty. I don't want you to do more. You're doing enough.
0: Yeah, because there's, a, there's a, a, a question whose source I can't cite for you, but I've used it here a lot in my 10 years. Do you want your children to be happy, successful, or good? You know, And too often, I think our parent constituency get hung up on successful or happy, right? And we forget good. And really, at the end of the day, where in my estimation, at least this is how my wife and I parent with our three boys, we spend a whole lot more time on the conversations of excelling at being good, like being a good person who gives his or her best effort, at those things that are of greatest passion and meaning to him. The success and the happiness are essentially um, tied to that. They are outcomes of pursuing goodness. But when you worry about success all the time, yeah, but if he doesn't take those extra math sessions or doesn't go on that mission trip, he's not going to get into college X, Y, or Z. Again, that's an external metric of success, quote unquote, that's being imposed upon the family and the child, and I just feel like if you just take that question you know happy, successful, or good and sort of ruminate on where your family's priorities are and then set sort of authentic goals in my estimation really around goodness rather than the other two you, you, you can find yourself in a much happier state of mind generally with your with your with your children and in your family construct
1: and that's that's a great way to be, in an, you know, to have integrity, to have a strong work ethic, and to be kind to others. I mean, those are wonderful life goals that get you probably further than almost anything else. And it's a nice message that doesn't have a hundred extra things you have to think about. It's a nice, clear message to send your kids.
0: But again, it's easy for you and I. It's easy for you and I to hit, sit here as professionals and talk about it. We probably both right. struggle at it in our homes at times. And this gets to the second flow line, which is this social media comparative culture. It has become so much harder. To because focus of that. on yourself and your, your own personal journey to being good to being the best version of yourself, it's hard to focus on that for the young people today. When a flip of their Snapchat or a scroll of their Instagram uh, or a look at their parents' outdated Facebook page, you know, <laughs> right, conveys right. all these conveys all these images to them of uh, sort of perpetually happy, perpetually handsome or beautiful perpetually talented right. peers surrounding them, right? Which is all we get on social media. So what are you right. t- families? What are you telling them today about social media and that comparative culture?
1: Well, and and I think, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. It leads it leads to some depression and some anxiety. Um, in general and um, there's a lot of social comparison. Am I pretty enough? Am I, you know, rich enough? Do am I doing the things everyone else is doing? And this FOMO or fear of being left out all the time. Um, and then this, uh, you know, questions about their body image where, Mm -hmm. you know, half the people on Instagram have had multiple plastic surgeries and these kids are trying to look like that or emulate that. And it's not natural or kind of a standard, you know, they think they're supposed to look like that and they don't. Um, and it's also increased social media is leading to less face-to-face time, uh, less going out and less Mm -hmm. sleep and more of this ambiguity about our relationships. Like, um, You know, if someone doesn't text you back right away, there's this anxiety that builds, are they mad at me? You know, um, if I upset them somehow, what does that mean? Um, There's more like, you know, it's not very cool to be open up front and say, I like you on a text. They usually send emojis, which are vague and have different interpretations or a little Mm -hmm. text here and there, but there's no commitment anymore and clarity with, with conversations that you do on the phone or in person. And so I think all of that in addition to the fact that this is all coming from not parents, this is coming from your peers and peers have a tendency to lead you astray, go down a rabbit hole and be interested in totally different things than your parents want for you. And so that influence has become huge. And they're saying if your child is on social media for more than three hours a day, that it leads to, and the more they're on it above that, increasingly progressive depression Mm -hmm. and isolation. And so, you know, and I try not to focus on the time as much as, what are they spending all their time on? Is it a productive website? Is it something that they're designing or creating, or is it, you know, or is it something that is mindless scrolling on Facebook? And they're just upset when they get off because they see the post from the weekend that they weren't included in, right? And how do they feel after they see it? And if it makes them feel bad, well, maybe we should cut back on that a little bit. So, um, you know, I think they need to understand the kids need to understand a little bit better how they feel when they're looking at things and what it's doing to them. And then to kind of assess it every once in a while with a parent and say, OK, like, if you're upset about this, maybe we need to cut back a little bit on your on your, uh, you know, your Instagram time, um, because honestly, you're, you never are happy when you get off the phone. You know, I mean, so, you know, while it's good to help set up plans, it also is very bad when you start um, seeing what everyone else is doing and you feel bad about that.
0: So you've mentioned some uh, really good advice to uh, parents about either hours in a day or quality of sight that children are going to. When it comes to onboarding kids to social media, you've got younger children than I, for example, we were mm-hmm. kind of 13 years old or eighth grade generally it was about the time that we said you could have, for example, a, you know, a cell phone. Are, are, you, uh, are you in a particular camp when it comes to uh, when parents should empower students with Uh, sort of a mobile technology like that?
1: You bet, I mean, it is interesting, we're seeing it younger and younger, and now, you know, there's fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, it's kind of become more of the norm than eighth, which it used to be, or even 16 when you got your car, which is how this sort of started, right? Um, And I will say most of the schools have moved towards a platform of you cannot have your social media available um, at school or on campus until eighth grade. So I think that is still, I, I think that is the goal, even though kids are now getting them younger, I think they need to be picked up certainly at bedtime and they should not be um, taken to schools before that because it decreases their time of talking to each other, even if they're allowed on campus. There, on the flip side of this, I've had a lot of pushback from um, some very conscientious parents that the ones who have waited till eighth grade or ninth grade are feeling like because the other parents have allowed it in six. Um, that their child is being left out on the texting and the social connectedness or the FaceTiming. Um, And it's, you know, it's creating a little bit of a social mismatch here where you're trying to do the right thing, but then your kid is not included. And so you get this mixed message like we all have creating anxiety about what do you do? Um, And I think, I think absolutely you need to pick your, your um devices up at bedtime there should never be a phone in your kids room because in my line of business I will tell you multiple times a year we get the problematic photos or pictures or mm-hmm. or students reaching out to another student in crisis which they're not capable of handling either you know and so if you have their phone, you can help intercede that and and keep something that is way too adult, mature, et cetera, away from your kid. So that's a place where I think good parenting comes in with a limit of taking it up. Even though it's hard to do it and even though they fight you, I think it's worth doing. Um, in terms of um, you know, a lot of classes have kind of sent around contracts to try to get a unified front for we're not going to give cell phones till eighth grade. Um and, and that, I think, has worked in some grades. And if you are a parent who really believes in that, you can try to send around petitions to try to have people sign and have them adhere to it. But um, I think that helps. Um, but more than that, I think you definitely need to be connected and know what they're on and be willing to take it away if they do something that looks dangerous. Or if they. you have to be on the sites they're on and, and watch it, Not yeah. not, not religiously but enough that you know what's going on
0: yeah to be to be familiar with it we have a central charging kind of, uh, rule you know in the kitchen for all our exactly. devices uh the other theme of that uh in, in terms of just not only being best practice for um, monitoring uh, social media site use is just it promotes healthier sleep so this the, the sooner does. you can get the device out of the uh child's hands frankly the adult's hands in the evening as well uh sleep is going to be uh, Quicker and sounder, um, and, you, and that you, we know is vital to well-being. Um, also, so. Um, another good yeah. reason. Uh, there's to,
1: some monitoring devices that help to, like, safer kid or some right. of the Disney Circle devices, things like that. They can kind of help with making sure that you are alerted if there's something inappropriate. But it kind of helps you not to be on it all the time and watching yourself, you know, and like having to police it.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, again, the third theme here is is the one that uh, you know probably everyone is m- most familiar with, and, and certainly has heard a lot about here at Parrish. As we've said, you know, uh, preparatory education doesn't have to hurt. You know, getting kids geared for the uh, complex global society that we talk about in our mission statement uh, does not necessitate uh, five hours of homework a night. It shouldn't mean that learning after seventh grade, as the research nationally shows, becomes less engaging and more transactional for kids, that the way we use time, the way we sequence curriculum... Uh, The autonomy that we give students, the voice and choice we give them to uh, determine what they're studying and to a certain degree, how they demonstrate mastery, like all these things, if we break from some of the standard models of school, um, can can be elevated, right? We can get kids to a healthier state of a state of mind. Uh, But, you know, from your perspective, as you sit across from students who are talking to you about life in school today, what are some of the stories that you're hearing on the front lines from the young people that you're working with?
1: Well, I think the, I think one of the biggest differences I've seen is this mass application process that people are going through as seniors, you know, before electronics and social, all this stuff, you applied to three to five schools. Now they're applying to 15 to 20 schools, it seems like, and it gets bigger every year. And that is creating an excessive amount of work on these kids. And it's really not helpful. A lot of times they're playing schools they've never been to look at. They, you know, they, they were just told it would be a good idea. And I, I think you should probably do your research on the front end to save them being overworked and overstressed going into that senior year. Mm-hmm. I think that would really help to kind of keep that, keep those applications to a dull roar. And I, I love the idea of having more um, electives during that uh, junior senior year where they can pick what they want to study to help them find an interest or to rule out things as well. I love that. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps kids feel like they are taking something they're interested in in school is not just something to be endured, but something to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, you know, in in addition, I think you you really have to, I think you have to cut back on the choices for your kids a little bit. And that goes against really maybe you know, what we've been taught in the past to like, let them do whatever they want, go wherever they want, think about whatever they want. And I think that's a good thing to do early on. But they also need to be told, Hey, this school's out of our price range. Let's not apply there. Um, Or, um, or, you know what, you're really good at this, this and this, let, let me, you know, talk it through with me, you're going to pick what you want to do. But I think I can direct you in a, in a more realistic path, right? Um, and that's what parents are for. It's not just to be sort of you decide I'm hands off and that ambivalence that then kind of freaks these kids out going in. You have to have that ongoing conversation of, well, why don't you look at these schools because they're good at this subject or you, you know, you're talking about you like the summer job you had. Why don't you think about business at these schools or what it, it helps direct them a little bit. Um, because right now they have more choices than we've ever had. And when we've got kids deciding if they want to date boys or girls, if they want to, you know, if, if they want to be a boy or a girl, if they, um, are they going to try drugs or vape or whatever? And there's too many choices and too much of this negativity around them with school shootings, et cetera. So we try to kind of focus on some positive things in their life and what they're good at and limit their exposure to um, things that, I mean, they don't really need to be following every, every negative thing going on in the world right now and try to keep them productive and not necessarily, um, you know, more, you want know what I'm talking, but not uh, over-involved in things that are just going to stress them out all the time. Yeah, yeah
0: and, back to, and that authoritative, that authori- well. yeah, back to that authoritative parenting too, that, that's where some of this choice-making comes in. So we would say to parents here, rather than having eight uh, obligations, commitments, and activities that get, you know, one eighth of your passion, you know, especially as you get to high school, what are the top three things that are driving your time? So if it's going to be the leadership institute and the dance squad and your academics, there are your three things, right? That may mean that you can't do church group and you, you can't do the tuba and, you, you know, you, you can't do X, Y, and Z, right? And so, that's where parents can really enter the conversation in partnership with the school around co- and extracurricular commitments. Similarly, in the academic side, uh, you, you know, pushing the child to take the next honors course, the additional AP, right. right, is contradictory to their well-being. It may help, in your estimation, prepare them to be quote-unquote successful and get into UT or get into college X, Y, or Z, but uh, until parents and the general populace understands the r- relative randomness of the college admissions process and begins to demystify this notion uh, that uh, s- somehow you can uh, sculpt your child
1: to get them in, right.
0: to, to f- sort of fit the, p- the f- puzzle piece that these uh, elite colleges need and uh, sort of luxuriate in the fact that there are literally hundreds of fine institutions that will prepare your child for their next venture, uh, that is really the Rubicon we can't cross, right? We, we just sort of can't break the psychological fixation on, the, um, on sort of the limited band of colleges that will deliver a child to a life of uh, meaning, purpose, success, and happiness. And I think that's, at the end of the day, where we'd like to see parents be more helpful around setting limits on co-curriculars, extracurriculars, and And sort of, yeah, just academic transcript building, right?
1: Well, you know, when I started this um, at at Highland Park, they recommended no more than two AP classes um, for seniors. And now there are lots that are taking five. And I don't really think it's necessarily changed where these kids are going to college. I mean, it seems like I'm hearing all the same schools I heard before and sometimes less of a percentage, and they're more shocked by it because I think they've built up in their head that this will get me in, and it doesn't always, yeah.
0: My last podcast just launched this week with Doug Christiansen, who's the Vice Provost for Enrollment and Admissions at Vanderbilt. I cite in that very podcast the fact that 12 years ago when he got there, not too much after the time that you started your practice, the acceptance rate at Vanderbilt was 33%. And they got 12,000 applications. Today, just 12 years later, applicant numbers up 182% because as you referenced, kids aren't applying to five schools anymore. They're applying to 15. There's more kids throwing their applications in there. Colleges are using that to sort of uh, um, raise their elevation on uh, college placement lists. And then they're accepting fewer kids. So Vanderbilt 12 years ago was taking 33% of their kids. Now they're taking 9%. Parent anxiety goes up. Student anxiety goes up. Demand to sort of overfill the academic and co-curricular buckets becomes super intense. And a lot of these statistics that you and I referenced at the top of this podcast, you know, are the results. So, you know, our efforts on this podcast and here at Parish are really just to try to help parents put these puzzle pieces together and see how they're connected and to realize that they have control and choice. Schools like ours have control and choice on the type of experience we want our kids to have. Before they leave our nest and go out into the real world and broken kids in the real world as adults are not going to be the people of impact that parish aspires for our kids to be. It says that in our mission statement that they're going to impact the complex global society. If they're not mentally well, if they can't take care of themselves, they are going to be no help. 20, <laughs> well you don't want right? to no help <laughs> right?
1: yeah. or this totally stressed out kid who then goes <laughs> off to college and you <laughs> do all this work to get in and then they come home at Christmas and come see me because they can't go back because they're too stressed or yes. they're class. Right. So you want a health you, you want a pretty healthy child and you want to go to college, but let's face it, almost all of the kids we're talking about from your school and from this area, they're all going to college. And they're all going to pretty good colleges, frankly, and they're all getting degrees. <laughs> It is, it is more that there's this idea, parent-driven, that it matters so much where you go as to whether you're going to have a leg up in terms of finances and keeping up with our status now and kind of getting ahead and giving that kid the leg up to continue on. And, you know, that isn't necessarily an expectation. You want your child to have a job and to have a good job and to work hard and raise their family. but you know, whether or not they hit upon some financial windfall or not doesn't always have to do with where they go to school. It's sometimes is a little luck and sometimes is the job that they pick. And a lot of times it's innate and you can't change it, you know?
0: No, no, so. no. And And at the end of the day, you know, as we wrap up, I would say that like, and, and I will say this is again, easy to say it now with my oldest only being 21, but I, I have said it in the past and I tell the boys this, um, you know, if you make $250,000, Right or $50,000 is inconsequential to me if you are at a point where the work that you're doing is meaningful and productive and contributory to a better world, you know, and uh, I'm not so sure the broader societal psychology or parenting styles today have that as the primary message, and it's a difficult message to send. Nobody wants to see their kids, you know, having to hang out uh, a a shingle in front of the house asking for handouts and and (laughs) assistance, and nobody wants to see their kids in their basements. But this is, this is, I think, uh, part of the, the, the uh, conversation and culture in our homes that we have to check and assess. Uh, in, in North Dallas, the implicit, not explicit, the implicit signals of worth are often associated with the size of home, the cars driven, the clubs visited during the weekend, and the places that we vacation. You don't have to say explicitly, this is what you have to achieve to be a success, This is just what the kids live in. So what you have to actually be explicit in saying is these things that surround you are not definitions of your worth and they are not expectations on you moving forward, right? And that's- Right,
1: and and it's actually not as important as your friends, if like a good solid friendship group or Mm -hmm. your marriage and how long that lasts or your kind of sense of self-worth. Those actually matter more to somebody feeling like they've been successful sometimes than their actual- like net worth. I mean, I I see lots of people in here who are very wealthy, but very unhappy. Um, and so that, you know, that's a good message to send you. You want your kid to be an honest and have integrity and to be a good friend and to be loyal and good in his relationships or her relationships. And that actually leads to a healthy, healthy, healthier, happier kid who ends up being very successful in the way we measure people as well. So, you know, I, it, it is a double-edged sword. And I don't know if we're gonna be able to knock parents you know, kind of down in their expectations or kids down in their own internal pressure for what they want. But you know, I, I hope that if the message at a younger age is, I want you to be honest, not cheat. I want you to be a good person and a good friend and to work hard and that will pay off and it's gonna take work. And, you know, you can do it, though. It's not too much for you. I think that actually leads itself to a a kid who's going to do well and not crumble.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, this is it, right? I mean, as an educational provocateur and innovator and as you as a a child psychiatrist, I think we both like to be out of business. Like, I mean, I'd rather not be having this conversation. And I think we both recognize that uh, the messages that we've summed up the conversation with here in the last couple of minutes are... Uh, At this point, very countercultural and are going to be very difficult to unwire. But I am on record in written and spoken word of saying, you know, that for me, reimagining the educational experience is a sword I'm willing to sort of die on in this last phase of my, you know, last phase of my career. And, um, you know, if I make some incremental progress, great. But I feel like it's, uh, frankly, a moral imperative Uh, right now to raise the uh, questions about what we're doing to our kids and the expectations that we hold for them, the type of school model that we design and and ask them to be put through and the way we parent them. So I appreciate you joining us today to, you know, kick up some more dust and promote some reflection on behalf of our parent body and other educators that are, um, that are listening. And uh, for sharing your wisdom with us on the, from my angle podcast, it's been fun chatting.
1: Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. And hopefully, you know, I know, unfortunately, I, you know, we have lots of patients here, but I do feel like there has been a shift to kind of help children, but to step back and let them take over rather than trying to do it for them. And I, I think that that message is getting out there, which is helping a lot.
0: So, Absolutely. Dr. Right. Regina McFarland, thanks so much for, for being with us.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. I am so excited to have Jeffrey Saligno on my next episode of the From My Angle podcast. Jeff is one of the nation's leading thinkers and writers on higher education and college admissions. You will not want to miss our conversation. In the meantime, thank you for listening to the From My Angle podcast.